0: with you. Can you turn to Romans chapter 6? We're going to look this morning at the first half of that chapter, verses 1 to 14. In our series on Romans we have been looking in reasonable detail at what the Apostle has to say to us. We have recognised that here The Apostle is speaking not on his own authority, but with the authority of Jesus Christ. And so therefore we cannot escape the words that he speaks to us. We cannot dispose of them by saying these are the words of a mere man. When Paul writes to us here, he is writing the words of Jesus Christ. We have seen that he begins to explain his message the gospel which he preaches everywhere he goes, because he was planning to visit Rome and wanted there to be no misunderstandings as to what he was going to say. He was providing this letter as a foundation from which to go on and to teach them other things. And so he begins to explain his gospel in chapter 1, verse 16, and he uses verse 16 and 17 as it were, as his text for the rest of the letter. And he then begins to show us why what he says in verses 16 and 17 are true. He gives us a quote from the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith or he who through faith is righteous shall live. And this, as so often in Paul's writings, raises a question in our minds. Why is this true? Why is it only those who have faith Who are the ones who will live? And so he begins to explain it to us in verse 18. And suddenly the whole tone changes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he then begins to tell us about what you and I are like in our hearts. He begins by showing that God has revealed himself to all men. There is therefore no such person as an atheist. But that in their wickedness men turn their backs upon God and will worship and serve anything else except the true God. And God therefore says to such people, "Okay, if that's what you want to do, if you want to turn away from me, if you want to be wicked and corrupt, then go that way. And he gives them up, he removes all moral restraint and he lets them go. That's the reason why we see such wickedness and godlessness in our society today, is because people have turned their backs upon God, and God has said, Fine. Part of your judgment is that you become like that. So rather than rejoicing in such freedom, people should be very dis- distressed that God has given up on a- them. So that's the rest of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2 Paul then turns to perhaps us who would look at chapter 1 and say Oh, but we're not like that. We'd never be like that. Such things are wicked and immoral. Paul then says, well, therefore you are self-condemned. You are inexcusable, he says, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you the judge do the same things. What Paul is saying is As soon as we open our mouths and say, this is wrong, we've set a standard. We've set a standard by which we judge others, so therefore that's the standard by which we should judge ourselves. How often do we break our own standards? There is no man living who keeps his own standards consistently. And we must remember that when Paul talks about sin, he is talking about it in the way that Jesus Christ spoke about it. Jesus didn't say that sin was merely, if we can use such a word, sticking a knife in someone's back, merely committing adultery, merely robbing someone, or robbing a bank, or that sort of thing. Jesus Christ made it very plain that sin is the thoughts in the mind. If you have anger against someone in your heart, if you think in your heart, I wish they were dead, even though you may smile sweetly to them every day of your life, you're a murderer. If you see a woman or a man and you lust after them, even though you may be totally faithful to your husband or wife, or even though you may live totally celibate all your life, yet you are an adulterer. If you go into a shop and you say, I'd love to have that, I wish I could take that, but I just haven't got the nerve, you're a thief. And we could go through all the other sins that the Bible lists, and the ones that it doesn't list, and we would find that we were guilty of very many of them, in our hearts, even though our hands have never gone out to do the things which are condemned. So as soon as we say that's wrong, we need to ask ourselves, but do I ever think those thoughts? Do I ever have those desires and attitudes? And so consequently, a man who might set himself up as being moral and just and righteous is condemned just like the people he's condemned. Paul then turns to the religious people, the Jews of his day. We might turn to the professing Christians of our day. A large proportion of our country would say that it was Christian. we could turn to them and we could say, "Okay, are you all right? Well, of course we're all right, because we go to church. We read the Bible, we pray, we do all the right things. Paul points out that such people are not all right. Such people are equally condemned, because they have even less excuse for failing to do what God requires. And yet they do fail to do what God requires. And so they are condemned as well. And then Paul gives us a summary and conclusion. And he shows that all men, everywhere, without exception, are under the power of sin, and therefore under the condemnation of God. And that, by nature, is the state in which you and I find ourselves. We are lost in sin, and we are under the wrath of God. This is bad news. This is not good news. But the word gospel means good news. Well, where's the good news in that? Well, the good news comes at the end of chapter 3. And in verses 21 to 26, Paul explains to us what the gospel message is. It's very simple. You and I cannot deal with our sins. When we go to the day of judgment and stand before God, we'll be condemned and cast into hell. But God has done what we can't do. He has sent Jesus Christ into the world who lived a perfect life who never did anything wrong and yet died. We saw at the end of chapter 6 that we read earlier that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus never sinned. So why did he die? He died as a substitute for us. We cannot deal with our sins and if we go as we are to judgment we'll go to hell. But Jesus Christ, when he died, took the sin of the world upon himself. And when he died, God punished him for the sins of the world. And so therefore now, Paul says that all those who believe in Christ experience the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and he says, your sins have been paid for. By Jesus Christ. And he sees you as if you were Jesus Christ. Dead to sin and perfect in every respect. And all we have to do is to believe. Or trust. Or submit. These are all different terms that we can use to describe what a person has to do. And it's not we have to go and climb some great mountain. It's not that we have to go on pilgrimage. It's not that we have to resolve from now on to live a perfect life. We just have to believe. Paul then shows in chapter 4 that this is not a new idea that he's cooked up, but it's found right the way through the Bible. And he gives Abraham as an example. Abraham came right with God on the basis of what he believed. We saw in chapter 5 about the blessings that come from believing. Having peace with God, knowing the love of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's given to those who believe, when they believe. And we've seen that Paul says that, well, when we were God's enemies, God sent his son to die for us, that we might become his friends. Now that we've become God's friends, how much more is God going to do for us? And we then, last time before Christmas, we looked at the end of chapter 5, and we saw there how Paul deals with the question of, how is it what one man, Jesus Christ, has done, can affect so many? And what he basically says is, well, God looks at the human race through two men, Adam and Christ. In Adam we're all condemned because we are all united with Adam and Adam's sin, his one sin, is imputed to all of us. If however we believe and we are in Christ then God sees us in Christ. Sin has been dealt with. We are right with God. We meet the requirements of God's law. We are perfect. And all those things that are true of Christ are imputed to us. And that's how what one man Christ has done can affect so many, it's because what one man Adam did affected so many. And that's how God deals with the world. But at the end of that chapter, he raises a question. And that's the question that he answers in the following chapters. He's trying to put himself into the mind of some of his hearers who would say to themselves, but Paul, you're saying that the more people sinned, the more gracious God was. So therefore, here's a logical conclusion. The more I sin, the more wicked I can be. The more wicked I can be, the more gracious God will be. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's logical. I've spoken to people and I've said to them, all you have to do is to believe in Christ. And their eyes are lit up immediately. Well, if that's true, that means I can live as I like. Wonderful. I can sin and get away with it. Paul goes on to show that is not the case at all. But today is also the first Sunday of a new year. I promised you that we would also be dealing with an issue that relates to the New Year. And I want to ask you, at this point, about your New Year resolutions for 1992. Not 1993, 1992. That wasn't a slip. How many of them did you make and how many of them did you keep? I wonder if you keep a diary, and you note in your diary as you go through, kept my resolution today, kept it today, kept it today, and then you get to perhaps 15th of January, some perhaps the end of February, some perhaps even till June, but would you have to write down, broke my resolution today? Whatever it is, how did you manage to keep it? those that you've made for this year, if you've made any, how many do you think you'll keep and how long do you think you'll keep them up? See, what Paul has said back in the earlier chapters is that because of human nature in our hearts, apart from the work of God in the heart, it is impossible for us to resolve to do that which is good in God's sight because we are in bondage to sin Paul deals with that very issue in this section of his letter so let's start going through and see exactly what he has to say what shall we say then, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not, God forbid how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it some people say Okay, you've been forgiven, therefore, once you've been forgiven, do what you like. Let's sin all the more. Paul says, never, never. It's a right premise but a wrong conclusion. One, some of Martin Luther's students once said to him, when they, they said, you mean that I'm forgiven just because of what I believe? Yes, he said, wonderful, think of all the things I can do. You mean I can live as I like? And Luther says, yes, you can. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can live as you like. But there's a question that follows, he says. How do you like to live? If you're not a Christian, and you have no concern for God and for the ways of God, to live as you like means ignoring God, and you can sin and do whatever you like. You can sin and not worry about it. But for the person who is a Christian, who has seen where sin has brought them, and who has seen that Jesus Christ had to come into the world to die for them, to deliver them from sin, sin is the last thing they want to do. So yes, a person can live as they like, but how do they like to live? Paul says, how can we die to sin? still live any longer in it well what does he mean died to sin how can we be dead we're still alive that's what he goes on to deal with in verse 3 he talks in a way that is difficult for us to understand do you not know that as many of you as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death ah no, we understand that perfectly he's talking about baptism we know what that is some of you are so right been baptized I'm sorry but Paul isn't talking about baptism here. This is not a reference to baptism. Many people make that mistake, but he's not talking about baptism as we would understand it. The word is used here as a synonym for union. Do you know what a synonym is? It's a word that means the same as another word. And so when he says baptized, he means united. And you might sit there and say, oh, but you're just saying that. You're just saying that because you don't you want to escape certain conclusions. Well, actually, Paul says almost exactly the same over in the next letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. What Paul's saying here is that as a consequence of these experiences, the people of Israel were united with Moses. They had a common experience, they were united together. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Do you not know that as many of us as were united with Jesus Christ, were united with his death. And that's what he means when he says, don't you know, that we have died to sin. We have died to sin because we have been united with Jesus Christ. And being united with Jesus Christ, we are united with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection. That's what he says. Therefore we were buried with him through union into death. We didn't literally die with him. We didn't literally go into the grave with him. But because we've been united with him, those things that are true of him become true of the one who's been united with him. If you want a definition of baptism, and I'm sorry it's convoluted, but a definition of baptism, it is the introduction or placing of a person or thing Into union with something else so as to alter its relationship to its previous environment or condition. Now, the Bible does talk about water baptism. This isn't one of those places. You want to know about water baptism? You look to other parts of the Scripture. There is not a drop of water in this passage. So as a result of this union this baptism into death we are united to Christ and all that is true of Christ becomes true of us well perhaps not everything but most of the things that are true of Christ become true of us Christ is the son of God we become children of God Christ is righteous we are righteous Christ will live forever in the presence of God we will live forever in the presence of God because we've been united with him Take a pea and you put that pea into a jar and you put the lid on the jar. And if I put the jar there, where would the pea be? Well, it's in the jar. And it's on there. Well, I now took the jar and put it down on the floor, where would the pea be? Well, the pea's in the jar. What's true of the jar is true of the pea. Suppose I threw the, pea, the, the jar into the lake on the Quinter. Where would the pea be? Well it's in the jar which is on the lake. What's true of the jar is true of the pea. And we are the pea and the jar is Christ. What's true of the one is true of the other. We've been united with him. And as a consequence we are now dead to sin. We no longer live in that environment. And in fact more than that in verse 6 he says knowing this that our old man was crucified with him. The old man, the man, the woman that we were before we came to Christ. We're dead. And so I'm now a new person. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We don't regard that person anymore in the same way as we did before they were converted. They're a different person. They're no longer the old man, they're the new man. And repeatedly you get calls throughout the New Testament to live as the new man and here is one of them don't live like the old man anymore because you're not the old man you're the new man and we're able to do that because we've now been freed from sin verse 9 knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more death therefore no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died he died to sin once for all but the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, because Christ has died, because Christ has been freed from the dominion of sin, through his death, we have been freed from the dominion of sin. Before a person becomes a Christian, they are in bondage to sin. They come not escape from sin. They must sin. But once a person is in Christ and has died to sin, there is no obligation anymore. They're not under the dominion of sin. They don't have to sin. They now have the choice to do what is right. so Paul then begins to speak about the power of sin being broken. Now there are various addictions in this world. And addictions can be hard to break. If you've ever yourself partaken of tobacco and you have managed to break that addiction, you will know how difficult it is. You talk to smokers, and they will say, I'd love to give up, but I can't. And people are beginning to recognize that perhaps the most addictive drug of them all is nicotine. It's far more addictive than heroin or cocaine or any other that you care to mention. And that's why smokers find it so difficult to give up. They're in bondage to it. And they would sell their grandmother. Before they would give up their tobacco. Drunkards are the same, people that misuse alcohol. There's nothing wrong with alcohol, but it's wrong to misuse it. And you get people who now like to call themselves alcoholics. But the old fashioned term is much more descriptive they're drunkards. And they find it difficult to give up. And again, they sell their grandmother. I don't know how many of you know the ex-footballer Jimmy Greaves He's written a book about his own drunkenness and he says that shortly before the breakup of his marriage and that caused the breakup of his marriage his wife would sometimes throw all the drink away and he would then hunt the house trying to find a drop of alcohol and eventually he'd go out and find all these empty bottles in the dustbin and he'd hold each bottle up to his mouth to get the last drops out because he's addicted to it thank God he's not anymore thank God he's now back with his wife again he was addicted to it people that get onto heroin and cocaine it's a hard habit to break because they're addicted to it it's difficult to break it they're in bondage to their drug they've got to have one more fix and if you think well such things don't happen in this area I could take you to the house two miles away of a registered drug addict who uh, on regular occasions will inject himself with heroin these people exist around us and he's in bondage to his drugs but he Jimmy Greaves the smoker, they can give up, they do have the ability with sin it's different you can resolve at the beginning of the year I'm going to stop smoking I'm just going to stop drinking I'm going to stop taking drugs I'm going to stop being nasty to my parents I'm going to be nice to the children you can resolve in all manner of things the problem is you're in bondage to sin until you come to Jesus Christ and in the sight of God it's no good until first you come to Christ and the bondage has been broken. For the Christian, sin's power has been broken, and therefore the Christian can do what is right. And here is one way in which you can determine whether someone really is a Christian. Do they hate sin and turn from it, and seek to do what is right? When I was living in Liverpool, one of the students in the Christian Union came round to see the friend that I was living with at the time, found him out and spent the afternoon talking to me and we got round to talking about a member of the Christian Union who was having great difficulties, or rather they were having great difficulties with him because this lad was immoral. He found it very difficult not to jump into bed with women. Not just the same one, but anyone that happened to be around. And the Christian Union were very concerned about this. And I said, well, that's interesting because this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that the power of sin has been broken. And so, therefore, if he can't give it up, then perhaps in his life the power of sin hasn't been broken. He's not a Christian. I said, and this is what the Bible says you should do. The Bible's very clear for someone who calls himself a Christian, who lives an immoral life, then you have nothing to do with them in order that they might repent and be forgiven oh but we're afraid that if we did that he'd completely fall away I said well there you are that's the problem the man's not a Christian at all why pretend anymore let him see what he really is and then you could perhaps start doing him some good sadly I don't think my advice was listened to but you can look at people and you can say well look he says he's a Christian but look at the way he lives how can he be Ask ourselves that question. What about me? What about the things that I do? The things that I do that demonstrate that I, I can't overcome them. The power of sin has not been broken. And I find it impossible to do what is right and what God requires. But if you are a Christian, if you have submitted to Jesus Christ, if you know your sins forgiven, then we are urged to yield ourselves and our whole being to God as instruments of righteousness To do what is right. We're able to do this. Verse 14. Because sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under law. But under grace. Now just a quick note. Paul in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Is dealing with these objections. Not just this one objection he deals with. This one objection is raised. And he answers it. And in verse 15. He raises another one then he raises another one further down in verse 7 of chapter 7 and then in verse 13 of chapter 7 a fourth he's dealing in these two chapters with objections and we need to read these chapters in the light of that many people have been confused because they haven't seen that and there are these objections raised and Paul answers them and he's not doing anything apart from answering those objections but I want to finally just Apply some of these things that we've seen this morning. Paul says that for the believer the old man is dead. Is that true for you? The old man is the old woman dead in your heart? Are you now a new man or woman in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you've been converted? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Do you know that time and place where God dealt with you and forgave your sins? you can, then don't live like the old man, the old woman anymore. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. Live as if you're in Christ. And this, as I've said, shows the problem of formal religion. People will go to church, people will read the Bible, people will pray, they'll get involved in all manner of things and say, oh, I'm a Christian. But they have no power in their hearts to do right Outwardly they may give the impression, but in their hearts still they are wicked and corrupt. So we need to ask ourselves, since we profess to have come to Christ and to have been converted, has there been any change in our hearts? Has there been any change? Are we different from what we were? We're asking you, Are you perfect? I'm saying are you different? Can you say, I'm not what I was? Not what I should be, but I'm not what I was. And this has come about because of what Jesus Christ has done in my heart. Is there a continuing battle with sin? And does sin dominate? Do you find now that when temptations come, you're able to resist? Or do you find that you're like Oscar Wilde, who could resist anything, except temptation we need to remember what those sins are that most afflicted us in the past and ask whether we are now able to dominate them rather than having them dominate us what are your new year's resolutions are you going to keep them this year do you have the power to keep them are they spiritual ones are you seeking to become more godly To know God better. To become more like Jesus Christ. There's only one way that you can achieve such resolutions. That is to know that your sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake. And that you have surrendered your heart and soul to him. And that you know in your heart the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't know that, then you will never keep the best resolutions. You will never be godly. And at the last, God will say to you, Depart from me, you wicked man. I don't believe any of us would want that. So we must be sure that we have come to Jesus Christ and that we know him as our own saviour.